1: the story i had a um, interesting political career which was rising well in the um, mid 1990s but everything went wrong when i very foolishly told a lie in the course of a civil lawsuit and i was caught out and was sentenced to what amounted to a 7 month jail sentence so i crashed from a very great height to a very low depth
0: G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, we have quite a remarkable one for you today. Jonathan Aitken is a former member of British Parliament and was once a rising star in British politics in the 1990s. He had been a Defence Minister, he was in the Cabinet as Chief Secretary to the Treasury, and journalists were starting to write favourable articles about his future prospects for the top job. But that all came crashing down after he was caught in a scandal. Jonathan Aitken is sharing his story with Eric Scadabo. Things looked pretty
2: rosy for you from the outward appearances. Everything seemed to be going your way.
1: Yes, I had an interesting political career which was rising well in the um, mid-1990s. But everything went wrong when I very foolishly told a lie in the course of a civil lawsuit and I was caught out and the newspapers put up a great hue and cry for me to be prosecuted for perjury, which I was, and realizing at that stage what a mess I'd made, and how wrong I'd been, I quickly confessed, pleaded guilty, and was sentenced to what amounted to a seven-month jail sentence. So I crashed from a very great height to a very low depth.
2: Mm. And of course, this was very publicly covered?
1: It certainly was. Um, I went through a series of agonies, defeat, disgrace, divorce, bankruptcy, and jail, and all of them took place in the spotlight of a merciless media. So it was a rough time, and life really did fall apart.
2: And what would you say was your lowest point?
1: I guess the lowest point was my first night in prison. I was uh, sentenced and then taken off to uh, jail in London called Belmarsh. And when I arrived there, It was a culture shock, to put it mildly. It was a rough afternoon. And when I ended up late at night in my cell, I was suddenly terrified to hear a chant of a very obscene nature. But the gist of the chant was that a whole lot of prisoners were going to do terrible things to me the next day uh, in uh, all kinds of obscene and anatomical ways. And I was really, really scared as I sat in that prison cell that night. It was uh, the lowest point of my life.
2: Okay, and on a lighter note, you had a conversation with the prison psychiatrist?
1: Yes, uh, this was the one note of humor on the black day of going to prison. Hmm. To get the humor of it, you have to remember that my sentencing had not gone unnoticed by the 700 or so photographers and reporters outside the court, but it had gone unnoticed by the prison psychiatrist. Hmm. And I was suddenly taken in front of him, so that he could find out whether or not I was a suicide risk. And he just had a busy day. He hadn't been switched on to the media. So to him, I was just another prisoner. And vaguely, uh, he asked me you know, sort of a lot of bog standard questions name, number, date of birth, next of kin, does your next of kin know you're in prison? And then the question after that was, does anyone other than your next of kin know you're in prison? And I thought of those hundreds of reporters and photographers outside the jail, and I said, well, as a matter of fact, I think perhaps um, 10 or 20 million people know I'm in prison Mm -hmm. by now. And the psychiatrist didn't think this was a humorous line (laughs) at all. His eyes narrowed, and he said, "Um, do you mean to tell me you think that uh, 10 or 20 million people know you're in prison? And um, I nodded. And then his tone became kinder and more clinical, and he said uh, in a soft voice, May I ask you, have you ever suffered from delusions in your life? (laughs) (laughs) uh, Well, my delusions were getting shed pretty fast that day, but um, it was the one note of humor that struck.
2: Okay, thanks for sharing that story. Now, many people would think that this is the end of the story. You know, you've crashed and burned. Everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. It's just a hopeless situation, but things turned around for you. Could you please share...
1: Well, they turned around in a very good and positive way, Um, and today I'm a happy man, a fulfilled man with an interesting life, uh, and uh, very happy both personally and in career terms. The turnaround really came um, in a phrase because of uh, repentance and turning to Jesus Christ in faith, and that wasn't a quick or easy process in my case. Um, I had a lot of sin and a lot of pride and a lot of other junk to shed, and it wasn't uh, simple. It was helped enormously by my doing uh, one or two things, like an alpha course, Mm -hmm. like uh, going to confession, like um, uh, having friends who came alongside me as prayer partners, and I resisted some of their teachings at first. Uh, I wasn't a sort of overnight Uh, convert at all Mm -hmm. Um, but there was a battle sort of within me and gradually I became aware that what was happening was a spiritual journey in which my um, hitherto very weak uh, nominal Sunday Christian half Christian which I now know is about as good as being half pregnant my (laughs) previous sort of uh, lukewarm religious stance um, changed gear and quietly But definitely, I became totally committed to a real and obedient uh, relationship with uh, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when that happened, of course, it was greeted with plenty of cynicism by the Mm -hmm. media, but it um, nevertheless strengthened me to the point where I got through my prison sentence much better than I thought. And when I came out of prison, I went to the only place in Britain where the food is probably worse than prison, which was an Anglican theological college or seminary <laughs> in Oxford, and there I studied for two years. I wasn't quite sure why I was studying, except that I wanted to get to know God better. And when I finished uh, my degree in theology, I decided um, not to go into any kind of uh, full-time professional ordained ministry, but instead to um, earn my living as a, an author uh, Christian author, I've just written a big book on Charles Coulson, the American mm-hmm. uh, Prison Fellowship leader. I write shorter books. For example, I've done a commentary on the Psalms and a book called Prayers to be Under Pressure and Psalms to be Under Pressure uh, and a um, volume of autobiography or two. But at the end of the day I thought I will keep one foot in the real world of earning my living as a broadcaster, as an author but I will give all my voluntary time to these two ministries which helped me so much on my journey one is the alpha course or the prison alpha course and its offshoots like caring for ex-offenders all good charities and the other is prison fellowship mm-hmm. and all the work that it does in prisons around the world and i'm speaking to you right now from australia where i'm on a tour of all the big cities and the new zealand cities and going on to singapore and hong kong and into china and all my troubles these days are devoted to, if you like, lay evangelism and spreading the word not just about um, faith, which is crucially important, but also some of the practical applications of faith, in particular in prison ministry, through these two organizations.
2: Now, you mentioned Chuck Colson, whose life seems to somewhat have mirrored yours in that he was in a big political scandal in Watergate in the United States in the 1970s, but he also had a role in your conversion, is that right?
1: That's true. Chuck Colson and I think we may be the only two people in the world who have managed to combine a high political office, followed by a disastrous mistake, followed by uh, going into jail, and then while in jail... Uh, building a living and believing and committed faith in our Lord Jesus, and then going on from that to work in prison ministry, in his case, he founded prison fellowship, and as sort of part of that uh, work he does in fellow- prison fellowship, as soon as he heard I was in trouble, he reached out to me and mm-hmm. wrote to me, sent people to see me, and then we met and talked. we had known each other for some years anyway as fellow politicians. But um, he was a great friend to me and a great mentor, and he is really my role model, and uh, he was couldn't have been a, a better Christian or better friend so far as I was concerned.
2: Wow. Now, let's back up and go to your prison life. It sounded like things started off pretty rocky. How did they proceed from there?
1: Well, they were rocky at the beginning, but I found I had a useful trade in prison, which was the reading and writing of letters in a british prison a third of all prisoners can't read or write at all and a good many more have really subliterate skills only equivalent to school children age eleven so when it became known that i was willing to read and write letters to my fellow prisoners i was in demand and a queue used to form outside my prison cell every evening and i got to know some of the guys for whom i was reading and writing letters very well and although this was a butt of some humor at first, it gradually resulted in some relationships, which in turn led to the finding of a prison prayer group. And that was another milestone of my own spiritual journey and I think some of my fellow prisoners in that prayer group. And we had a, a wonderful spiritual journey in the jail uh, as a result of our own prayers, and as a result of the help extended to us from visitors who came in from Alferne from Prison Fellowship. So it was a good journey one way or another, even though it was a difficult journey.
0: You're listening to The Story. Today, Eric Scadabo is chatting with former member of British Parliament, Jonathan Aitken, about the rise and fall of his political career. Next, we'll find out more about his life in prison and about the various ways he's serving the Lord. That and more when we return. We're continuing with Eric Scatterbo chatting with former member of British Parliament, Jonathan Aitken. As we heard before the break, his rising political career came to a crashing halt after he was caught in a scandal and sentenced to prison. Now we'll find out more about his life in prison and how his faith has grown.
2: Can you share with us about some of the interesting individuals that you met in prison?
1: Sure. Well, I think my first prayer partner was an Irish burglar unsurprisingly called Paddy hmm. and he one night said he wanted to pray with me which was a great surprise and so we prayed together and for four or five nights and then he so sort of said this is too good just to keep the two of us um, we ought to enlarge this uh, two-man prayer partnership and Paddy had in, in him the qualities of a good recruiting sergeant mm-hmm. and he went off round the jail recruiting and he brought in, I remember, an armed robber, he brought in a banknote forger, he brought in a fraudster, he brought in a pickpocket, he brought in a couple of murderers and one or two other villains. And this was a really unusual prayer group that suddenly started to form. So unusual that it gave a completely new meaning to the Christian term, a cell group. <laughs> and anyway, there we were, often praying, and as prayer partners, I mean, some dropped in, some dropped out, but the prayer circle grew and we had uh, over 20 prisoners playing together on a regular nightly basis, and uh, to this day, um, 17 of them are out of prison and uh, are leading law-abiding citizens' lives uh, and as committed Christians, too. So Hmm. the Lord was definitely at work in that prison prayer group.
2: Wow, that's fantastic. Are you in contact with any of them?
1: I'm in contact with uh, most of them, Paddy in particular. But a couple of years ago, I got married, and it was rather a spectacular wedding um, beautiful church in London, nice big reception. I was marrying uh, someone in England who was a rather famous lady because she had been married twice before, and her two deceased husbands were film stars, mm-hmm. uh, Rex Harrison and uh, richard Harris. So when I became the new husband, uh, which had a couple of hard acts to follow, but it was uh, as you can imagine. Uh, a wedding which attracted a certain amount of media attention. But one little aspect of it which attracted media attention was by some strange uh, statistical symmetry. Uh, There were exactly the same number of ex-Cabinet ministers at the reception for the wedding as there were ex-prisoners from my jail days uh, present at the wedding. And uh, that indicated that I had not uh, lost friends from my prison days any more than I'd lost friends from my political days.
2: Hmm. Now, what can we learn from your experience?
1: I think the uh, biggest thing to learn is that, first of all, I wish, in retrospect, that I had formed a believing, obedient relationship with Jesus much, much earlier in my life. I wouldn't have messed up. I wouldn't have gone through the pain and the personal catastrophe that I went through. So I think lesson number one is search and find a, a real and living relationship with Jesus earlier in your own life. Don't wait till disaster strikes. But the second lesson is it's never too late to uh, form a, a real uh, and obedient and living and committed faith. And having done that and having turned to the Lord in genuine repentance, I found that uh, as happened to the prodigal son, the Lord, the Father, comes rushing out to meet you and he welcomed me and forgave me the burdens of sin, and my past life sort of rolled away on my shoulders, and he gave me a fresh start. And I think anyone can have that forgiveness. Anyone can have that fresh start. Um, it's never too late to uh, change your life uh, and to commit yourself to Jesus.
2: And how have people reacted to your story?
1: Well, in mixed ways. On the one hand, there are uh, plenty of good Christian Friends or neutral friends who have responded enormously favorably. Uh, But at the same time, there are a lot of people who are cynical, Mm. who say, oh, this is all some sort of public relations trick, an old politician trying to gain acceptance. So I have that, and I have that Mm -hmm. from some sections of the media. I think my response to it is to try not to be affected either way, either by the well-wishers and their positive thoughts and expressions and letters, or by the cynics and their um, negative comments. Um, And I try and steer this middle course uh, because I'm not trying to please any worldly audience. I'm not trying to win acclaim from newspapers or journalists uh, by what I now do. What I'm trying to do is to serve the Lord and to please him as my audience of one. And... I think he would be very harsh on me on the Day of Judgment if he uh, knew, as he would, that my efforts to serve him were all some sort of uh, public relations gimmick. Mm -hmm. So I'm confident in the belief that um, I'm doing my best to please the Lord, and I therefore don't worry about um, cynics, and I don't get uh, flattered by well-wishers.
2: Now, I understand you're doing a lot of public speaking now, as you mentioned earlier.
1: Yes, I do about a 100 speaking engagements a year, um, largely for prison fellowship and for the Alpha course. Uh, I do also accept invitations from churches and outreach organizations. And I do that gladly because I think it's a Christian duty to witness, and it does bring great rewards, not for me personally, but in terms of seeing how prisoners respond to an ex-offender who comes back into prison and says, try building a relationship with the Lord, try an Alpha course. And I find that uh, this uh, voluntary sort of outreach, speaking commitment of mine is something which gives me great personal joy, personal satisfaction, and it's the most important activity in my life.
2: Now, one of the places that you recently gave a talk, I understand, was in front of staff at the White House?
1: Yes, uh, that was about a year ago. But um, there is a Christian group in the White House of uh, staffers, and they have a speaker about once a month, and um, I was invited to address this group, and uh, I did a um, a little sermon based around Psalm 130, which is a psalm which meant a great deal to me, out of the depths of I cried to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice, O Lord, be attentive to my cry for mercy, is the opening verse. And it was a very suitable verse because the guys in the White House were and still are under a lot of pressure. And I think um, some of them uh, very much appreciated a talk which shows you how to climb out of the depths of heavy pressure with mm-hmm. God's help. And uh, that psalm, I think, really spoke to some of them.
2: Now, some people listening today might be going through something of The experience you had, maybe not so publicly, but on a personal level, going through the depths of despair, what would you share with them?
1: Well, the first thing I'd say is that recognize that your adversity can be a gateway to a deeper faith, if only you will put your hope and trust in the Lord. I think it was Martin Luther who said, it is in our pain and in our brokenness that we can come closest to Christ. And my experience was very much that uh, Luther quote is true so i think i would advise trusting in the lord um committing to the lord delighting in the lord those are three phrases which appear in the opening verses of psalm 37 another great favorite psalm of mine and by trusting committing and delighting uh what seems to be in worldly terms a huge disaster can be turned around into a new life and a happier life and a more peaceful life of obedience and faith and trust in Jesus.
2: And what's in the future for Jonathan
1: Aiken? I don't know. I was rather struck the other day by um, a sermon I heard which began in this way. Question, what makes God laugh? Answer, people who have plans. (laughs) Now, I used to be a tremendous career planner, I was in politics, and look where it got me, into a prison cell. Hmm. Uh, so these days I really don't have plans. I hope to go on uh, writing books. I hope to go on working in the voluntary field for these two uh, ministries, uh, Prison Alpha and Prison Fellowship. Uh, I hope to serve the Lord, but I do not know how or where or how it will work out. What I do know is that if you... Put your trust in the Lord. He will guide your footsteps. That was
0: former member of British Parliament, Jonathan Aitken, sharing his story with Eric Scatterbone. He once served the Prime Minister of England, and now he serves the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. His life is yet another example of how God can turn our mess into a message. The interview was recorded several years ago, but it's great to hear that he's continuing to use his talents and skills for the Lord. He recently became an ordained minister and now plans to be a prison chaplain. You can read more about his life journey in his book Pride and Perjury, an autobiography, which is just one of several books he's written over the years. And He's become quite a prolific author. His website is JonathanAitken.org That's Jonathan Aitken, A-I-T-K-E-N dot org. Well, thanks for Joining us, I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story.
2: He was, you know, mentally disturbed in many ways. Um, he was in Pentridge when their second daughter was born, and no one seemed to know where he was, whether he was in Pentridge or whether he was in J Ward in Ararat. It was some time before he even. Pam was a few weeks old before they could tell him that he had a daughter. Oh, wow.
0: Barbara Varney's husband was struggling with alcoholism and then turned to serious crime. In the midst of this desperate situation, Barbara called out to God for guidance. We'll hear her story next time. The Story. story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life.